Welcome to Day Beautiful. I'm Adam Vitcavage, and this is a podcast where you can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check us out on the web at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. Today's guest has had her writing appear in the LA Times, the New York Times Book Review, the Paris Review Online, and dozens of other places. Her essay on food insecurity was published in the Best American Food Writing 2019. She's done extensive reporting on child welfare system, and her work appears in the Netflix docuseries, The Trial of Gabriel Fernandez. Her debut novel, A Tiny Upward Shove, is out now. I'm, of course, talking about Melissa Chadburn. Hey, Melissa. How you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's, uh, it's turning into spring over here in Southern California. Mm-hmm. So that's oh, yeah. Like perfect, actual perfect time. Or like it's yeah. getting cool. It's still cool, but getting warmer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I live in Denver now and it's just, it was like 70 degrees this weekend and 30 degrees today. I have no clue what that's yeah. about. Not a fan. Well, yesterday I live um, in an interesting part of Southern California. We're at 6,000 feet elevation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we do get weather. So yesterday I woke up to snow, um, oh, but, wow. uh, but today we're, we're back in the sixties. Awesome. Um, <laughs> And you have a book coming out. You're not a weather person, even though I always talk about weather at the band. You are, you have, no, I do it way too much. Your book, A Tiny Upward Shove, that will be out by the time this podcast is out. Um, tell readers what it's about from your perspective, you know, not the publicity copy or not what the media thinks it is. What, where do you, th- what is a, t- a tiny upward shove? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> this is good practice. This is my first time officially. Exactly. So you're going to answer this a lot. So I just throw it out there first always. <laughs> Um, well, you know, um, Marina, my protagonist, uh, grew up in foster care in LA County. And so it just sort of tracks her trajectory, um, through the lens of, um, a figure in Filipino folklore known as the Aswang. So, um, you know, depending on who you ask, some people will tell you the Aswang is like a shapeshifter. And some people will tell you that she's like, a werewolf and some people will tell you she's god forbid a spinster um and so uh uh really the aswang is sort of like a, a product of colonialism and enlightenment but you know she's uh in my um heart of hearts i feel like uh more rather than a monster she's just this badass uh, feminist figure and so she's our, our narrator who, who takes mm-hmm. us on this trajectory yeah. And, and when I, I think I first read maybe the Kirkus review and then I read the book and the Kirkus review, it, it does explain like everything that you just explained, but I honestly had no clue even what to expect going into it. I mean, there's a lot of pieces that are working together to make a beautiful book. I guess what was like the first piece, the first Genesis that kind of pushed the story into where it, where it became. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, so I do work in a lot of different genres, mm-hmm. um, And, you know, I think like most, like many first novels, um, it was sort of autofiction. It started as autofiction. And um, I had, at the same time I was writing this, um, I was reporting on um, a particularly harrowing case in the LA County foster care system. um, And, uh, that became like a, a Netflix docu-series called The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. And, um, but I, I have often reported on um, multiple failures within the child welfare system, particularly here in LA County. 
And so I really was troubling our ideas of justice. Um, in that case, it resulted in um, a uh, the death penalty for um, one of the uh, for the stepfather in that case, and a lifetime imprisonment for the mother in that case. And so, but yet I still was sort of unsettled with our concepts mm -hmm. of justice, especially here and. The U.S. and so I, uh, I wanted to tell the whole story. You know, I always say like when I'm trying to determine what genre I write in, I I'm often just container hunting. Like the earlier parts of writing is container hunting. Like and so if I tell something, oftentimes as a piece of journalism, it's uh, has something to do with impact um, or creative nonfiction. Maybe I'm trying to play with form. Um, whereas fiction really like allowed me to tell this whole story, which included magic and included um, bits of autofiction and included um, even the what, what's limited in the reporting, but some of the reporting and then also what's limited, which is like what I consider slow forms of killing, you know, where the multiple fissures within different systems. Um, so, so that's that's sort of what drove this project, but it did start off as you know thinly veiled uh, auto fiction. Mm -hmm. And I, I want you mentioned you know your reporting for that case in the like child welfare program or child welfare world of LA that became the Netflix docu series. Take me back to you as a writer. Are you like? This, this is maybe very too basic and not even something you can answer. Have you always been a fiction writer, a novelist, or were you journalists? Like what, what, how, like what is your writing world like? Like I said, I write them all. Yeah, I exactly. write it all, I, except for poetry. I mm -hmm. can't really say that I'm, I can't claim poetry. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, so I, I write, um, I've mostly been published in, um, nonfiction as mm -hmm. an essayist. I think people would probably consider me an essayist, but also I have published a great deal of um, mm -hmm. reporting. Um, yeah. Most popularly amongst writers would likely be um, my reporting on the grifter, the literary grifter in a march. Um, so, but uh but yeah, so, I mean, like I said, it just depends on what my intentions yeah. are. If I want to um, have an impact or a shift in um, a system, then sometimes I will use reporting. Yeah. Um, and then if I want to play with form or language or, you know, I, I, or mostly if, if the vehicle for shifting is, is language, then oftentimes I'll turn to creative nonfiction. And also I will say like, this book um, took an incredibly long time to get out into the world. I mean, mm -hmm. I um, was in edits and revisions on this book for seven years. So um, that probably influenced uh, my medium for publication as well, because it's like, I can't, you know, as a writer, you're jumping in and out of the world over yeah. and over again. And so, um, yet I, I still make sense of the world through writing. And so I couldn't take on a, another long form uh, narrative um, because I was still like in and out of this world. And so I would often publish essays yeah. as I was making sense of the world in this process. And so you're in 
revisions and editing for seven years. How quickly did you write the book? The I mean, the first draft or whatever draft, you know, like how quickly did it come out of you? Oh, I mean, that's a really hard question to yeah. answer just because it's like revision was still generative in a way. Yeah, this sure. is such a different book than the one that I started off with. Like I am a different person than the mm-hmm. one I started off with. Like, um, but uh, so, you know, I mean, I feel like this is the book I've been writing my whole life mm. in a way. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but, you know, um, uh, it's, it's definitely not even the same book that I, I contracted, you know, it, it's, it changed so much in terms of structure and um, really getting nailing down, like how the Aswang functions in the book, I think was the main thing, but the idea was there all along, I guess. It was the Aswang something that uh, maybe you just said this as my sentence was forming, but was that always a part of the book? Or did that come later? Yeah, it was always the part of the book, but, you know, I wasn't, um, the hardest part was for me, at least, working out the mechanics of the Oswald. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I I knew that um, I needed to, I was using her as a vehicle to say something about empathy. And um, so I knew she needed to have access to people's, like, memories and thoughts, but you know, how to define how that works. Like I basically was just like, look, she's dead. That she's the Oswang. That's how it works. You know? And I just Mm -hmm. wanted everybody to accept it on its head without really unpacking what that looks like for people. And so that was what, what I spent most of those years coping with and dealing with is, is pulling out that, that how it works and the structure of that. Did the story change much when, as you grew and as like your life on evolved did like the bones of the story actually change no it was just like i said the structure in terms Mm -hmm. of like figuring out the mechanics of this story the story was pretty much the same i always had like i was always pointing in the same direction i had you know like oftentimes writers do i i knew where i was beginning and i knew where i was ending but it was just like how i was going to get you there was the toughest lift for me um uh, you know, because in in the Philippines, a lot of people uh, still believe in the Aswang, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, people have been arrested for um, becoming, being, you know, alleged Aswang. You know, people oh. have been murdered and attacked. Like you will read reporting of an Aswang in you know, the Filipino inquirer, whatever. Um, yeah. So the Philippine inquirer. So, um, so for me to, I just thought it would be suffice to just say, oh, you know, so she, she's Oswang, so she can do these things without really showing you how that works. And so um, that was mostly the translation of that was mostly the work that needed to be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I was, yeah. Um, Sorry, I didn't. I, I want to go multiple directions. You're such an interesting person, like because you have written so much nonfiction about like topics that are so vital to America. But this book is so beautiful. I don't know where I want to cover right now. Um, <laughs> you're in a PhD program for creative writing, correct? correct? Uh huh. Creative nonfiction. Is that where you created nonfiction? Okay, perfect. Uh, so 
that's what, that was going to be my question. Yeah. Do you see yourself writing more? I, I know you say you do it all, but where do you see yourself yeah. maybe wanting to focus or do you, or you're still going to do it all? I hopefully I'll do it all. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, fiction is definitely a place where I play. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my advisors, uh, Maggie Nelson. And so, um, that there's also like this scholarly component and, and, um, a desire to engage, um, you know, the critical works and, um, and, and engage in this dialogue mm. about, um, uh, about just writing in the world and theory and ideas. Um, so there's that drive and desire, but then also I would say like, my scholarship is mostly born out of my activism as opposed to like my scholarship being driven to engage in this ongoing Mm -hmm. conversation. Um, And because I feel like my scholarship is born out of my activism, I will always probably pick a different genre based on what my desired um, outcome of that is, you know, what drives me there, hopefully. And then um, you also run, or I, I don't know if it's called running a site, but you, you have the redacted where you've reviewed case files since 2015. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of, so it's 2015 to 2019, you're still not doing that per se, but that's like where your activism kind of drove what your interests were in writing and, and like creator projects? Well, the, the, so that's part of my dissertation project okay. is, um, so I, um, I have all these case records of children who were um, murdered Mm -hmm. while they were open um, DCFS investigations. And so I was like, okay, now I have these case files. Like, what do I do with these case records? You know, and Mm -hmm. um, they are heavily redacted. And Mm -hmm. so uh, at first I tried just like unredacting them and um, making them available, but I wasn't really like satisfied with that um, there's it's dog time there's mm-hmm. kind of like running down the streets so anyways so i wasn't really satisfied with just the un, unredacted them so then i did like a, a contrapuntal reading of the redactions like what are the redactions doing here is there a way that i could read these documents differently um and then um it was early on during the pandemic. Um, and it was right after the stay-at-home mm-hmm. orders, um, shelter-in-place orders. That one first the the docu series aired, and it was like all of a sudden everybody was engaged in this conversation that I've been trying to talk about of this really difficult, heavy thing. Yeah. And then um, and people would like stop me in the market and on the street, and then. And then it was like, oh, who turned out all the lights? Cause then we were all sent home. And um, and I was also getting like all these messages on social media about other really dire cases and people wanting me to report on them. And so in some sense um, it was good because the best form of self-care after doing something like that would probably be to like step back and just, you know lay on the couch and watch garbage television or something and uh I couldn't do anything else and so in some sense that was good because it gave me the time and space to reflect and then in another sense it's like sort of contrary to everything that I wanted to be doing at that time but um 
one day I was walking in the forest shortly after that. And um, I was listening to um, sort of a, a fairy tale, um, Who Will Greet You at Home by Leslie Nicarima. And mm. there was just like a line in there, something like soft children with hard lives die young. And I was like, oh, it hit me so hard. And I thought about it and I realized like the stories that I want to tell are often told in fairy tales. For some reason, people are able to receive these mm -hmm. really, um, you know, harrowing narratives through fairy tale. I don't know what happens with enchantment, but for whatever reason with enchantment, people are able to receive these stories. Whereas with straight up reporting, people haven't always been able to receive these stories. And so I started uh, translating these case records um, uh, from case records to fairy tales. And that's mm. my dissertation project. And then did that dissertation project, did the redacted, did that influence Tiny Upward Shove, vice versa? Or did you kind of keep them in completely separate parts of your brain? I, yeah, I mean, I think that they do work in, in different parts of my brain. I'm still working on my dissertation project. Of course, yeah. Like a, yeah. a new thing, but but there is um there is a there is a redacted case file in a tiny upward shove as well. Um and so I think you know it's the first time people may engage with something like this. It may be, I, I imagine it may be somebody's first time seeing these types of I deal with these documents all the time. And so I think um yeah and i am sure that they somehow are in my psyche and i do have a deep desire of like wanting to have other people engage with them like wanting to translate them to um a more contemporary medium um because there's a violence that's occurring with the documents as well which is like that um that they exist and you know they're a form of state surveillance so not only is are they documenting violence but they're performing a kind of violence too and so i think that i really have this strong drive to do some sort of like intervention mm. on that you know to turn it over on its head yeah and that's why i find like i mean after i read the book i started going on your website and then reading all these articles you had written and then found the redacted and it's like it's just so interesting to me that a lot of, I think what you have reported on, I feel it's underreported in a lot of ways that, or at least the general society isn't talking about these issues as often as I feel they should be. And um, yeah, anyway, so thank you for doing what you do is another thing. <laughs> well, thank you for looking at all that stuff. Oh no, of course. And that's why like, uh, I was so all over the place with what I want to talk to you about because like everything about you interests me and um and your writing interests me like what you're talking about is super important like I said um you're finishing your PhD sometime soon I, like I know you're in the middle of your dissertation um what's in the future for you I mean continuing writing this do you want like what what where do you where do you see yourself going I guess um well, I mean, I hope um, I could just hang out with ideas. Mm -hmm. That's part of it. And um, I, 
I was telling one of my um, professors the other day, like, I have this idea that um, when I get through all of this, like at the end of all of this, um, mm-hmm. there, I'll be able to like, just read yeah. <laughs> for fun for a couple hours. Like, <laughs> I don't know a lot. It is like, I mean, I could, I guess technically I can do that now, but um, hmm. I, I see the, for me, like the light at the end of the tunnel is just like me uh, sitting in a really nice chair with um, a lamp on like reading for Mm -hmm. hours before bed each day. (laughs) So I don't know how I'm going to get that life, but like, I feel like I'm on the right path to do that. I mean, that probably looks like teaching during the day. That probably looks like a lot of driving during the day still, or, but, and um, hopefully continually continuing with my writing and mm-hmm. um and my activism but like hopefully do, there's some spot at where i could just like have two hours to quietly read yeah. for fun and pleasure yeah i talk about i saw on twitter someone posted like um do people enjoy like you know us who are in the literary world where we're reading for work or something do we read for pleasure anymore or like if you do do you feel guilty not reading for something that's going to further your career in some way or whatever. It's just interesting. Um, I feel like if I'm not reading a debut, I feel guilty almost just for this like project I've been doing, but you've also interviewed, um, you know, you interview authors for various sites, the rumpus, Kirkus, uh, other places. How do you approach talking to a writer, talking to another author? What's your, what's your goal every time you, you know, Brian Washington or Roxanne Gay or Lacey M. Johnson, like what, what's your approach? Um, well, I mean, I'm like, just, I'm so interested in people all the Mm -hmm. time. Like I'm so interested in like their lives and what they think about. But, um, I mostly am like, what's my, one of my favorite questions, questions to ask authors is like, what, what's a question that nobody's asked you yet that you wish somebody had asked you, you know? So I think that I'm just always interested in maybe, um, uh, I've heard before, like, um the truth is the most interesting story but the truth is very complicated and so I'm always interested in like the more complicated bits but also I know that that's not like a super easy question it's just something that I don't want people to walk away with thinking god you know I wish you'd asked me about this that or the other and she didn't um yeah so I think that that's the one thing and um from each of those authors though I've learned something rather you know new and interesting I mean Brian um his work is very close to place and Houston specifically and wanting to share that narrative. And, and Lacey, I learned a lot about justice from her. I remember we were, uh, we were at, um, I think it was like the creative nonfiction. Um, what is that? Like, a? it was in Arizona. It was, um, I don't want to say she was on a panel. It was on, she was on a panel and, um, it was, I don't want to, I keep on wanting to say summit, but it's like the creative nonfiction, nonfiction now. It was, that's what it was. It was like the nonfiction now um, conference. And um, she was talking about her book, The Other Side. And again, she was talking about justice. And um, people have often said, like, asked her in terms of, um, this uh, abusive ex that she had, um, you know, 
do you, don't you want him to pay? Like, don't you want him to like, cause he sort of has uh, gotten away or, you know, not been held accountable for this, um, for his treatment of her. And she's like, no, you know, I mean, she's like, if I could have really whatever I want, it would be one for him to acknowledge what he'd done two to apologize and like three to never do it again yeah. like that's really what i think we want deep deep down is like you know um to for people to agree to never do it again and so i think um and to actually acknowledge what they've done i mean so much of of our like work towards justice is like you know for pe people have uh just decided that they're and you're not decided but people oftentimes don't acknowledge you know um what they've done. So I think that that's, uh, that really impressed upon me about my overall project. I think mm -hmm. I heard her say that and how important it was to think about um, both justice and mercy. Yeah. I'll steal your question. What do you, what do you want people like me to ask you about your work in a tiny upward shove? Cause you're starting the press cycle. You're going to be talked to a lot. What do you yeah, hope people ask you? <laughs> Um, I don't know. I mean, let me think. I, uh, I mean, I like it when people talk about, um, facets of the, I, well, since I, I, I haven't spoken to people who have read the book mm. really, you know, this is like my first time speaking to someone who's read the book. Like a stranger. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so I'm always curious of like, what facets of the text you know interest them or stood out to them or you know yeah. or, or the writing or the text um because i i i'm in this interesting window like you know i've never published a book before mm -hmm. one thing nobody told me was is how um i this has been my like lifelong dream mm -hmm. i've been wanting to do this for so long and you know, I feel I'm thinking, I keep on thinking about all these um, external things that are completely out of my control about this process too. Like I'm older than I wanted to be when I published my first novel. Like I'm, I, I think I'm thinking about like all these things that are completely out of my control, you know, about the way I look or about like, you know, whatever, about whether or not I have these, um, the right answers for these questions but I um but I think um nobody told me like how terrifying this moment was gonna be uh. <laughs> I'm really scared about like it's now uh it's past its platonic ideal because it's like I held it in my hand and I looked at it now I have to now I'm concerned about like what other people think about mm -hmm. it you know and um embracing myself for um you know people's reactions which could be uh um could be anything who knows so i i'm always curious i'm not always but at this moment yeah. this particular moment in time i'm curious about um people's um questions about the text i think that there might be a lot of questions about I can anticipate that there might be questions about me and my life because I've written about me and my life. And I've had questions mm -hmm. before about me and my life because I've written about me and my life, you know, about 
my own experience growing up in foster care. And I think that my overall project, like the first piece that I ever published that really got attention was this essay called The Throwaways that I had mm -hmm. published in, at the Rumpus. And, um, and you think you're reading about um, a young woman who grew up in poverty and went, and went to foster care, but then you realize you're reading about taxes and how revolutionary and radical they are. Um, and so that was sort of like my effort to make taxes sexy. Um, <laughs> I was working on like a millionaire's tax uh, initiative. Um, and so anyways, I think I would be interested to hear about what your thoughts are on the book or your reactions on the book. Yeah, one thing, I mean, I always tell people what I super care about when I read is just like how it sounds in my head and how quickly or not quickly on purpose mm -hmm. text moves. Um, plot to me, I, I, I also work in a bookstore. I'm a, I, I, I'm a director of events for a bookstore and people always ask me like, Oh, like they ask me what the plot is for many things. I was like, I honestly don't even remember plots anymore. Like that's not what moves me. And so what, what really stood out from, for your book honestly was just like how we were, I was, you were able to sit in certain moments that were either dark or could have been dark or, but I mean, it, it just, it moved me in a way. That's what, that's what I took away from it. It moved me in a way because there was like this, there was space in it, I felt. Um, and, and, and the character story, even though I just said I don't care about story, nothing was rushed. And you just, you, you really invited us into a world that you felt the, the, like the breath in between everything. Like the, like it's, there's a lot going on obviously for this, for her life, mm -hmm. but it didn't feel like, um, too overwhelming in a way, even though it could have easily felt that way for me. I don't, oh, I don't know you. if that helps. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, well, one thing I've been told is, and one thing I hope is that if you find a piece of paper with my writing on it, like it somehow fell out of my bag and fell onto the sidewalk that you mm -hmm. would know it was mine. And I think one thing that I often, one there are a lot of different tools that I utilize, but one tool I definitely utilize both in my essays and in my fiction is um, white space. Uh, yeah. You know, there's like lots of white space and I'm that person who maybe starts off with vignettes and there will often be like something denoting the space between it. And so I think that um, that feels good to know that that's the impression. I think mm -hmm. what I'm hoping with the white space is that it does actually give you space yeah. for a breath. I mean, I love writing those lists. Like I love, um, that's like a fun, like, you know, yeah. you're typing away and you're like, I'm jamming, like this sounds <laughs> good, you know? And yeah. I like the lists, but then I like to also give you some white space in between. Mm -hmm. um, one of my, and I, I have to say, if I'm gonna like, uh, because I, and it's not, being a Braggy McBraggerson because I have really nothing to do with this, but I have to say like, I really like the font and the, um, the leaf that they put, the little leaf that they put in between the left and the left. Oh, yeah. So I think it's just really aesthetically. I'm, yeah, I don't have the book in front of me. I accidentally left it at the bookstore and I'm at home right now. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, one of my favorite craft uh, essays is um, Charles Baxter's 
uh, essay on stillness and it's in his um, craft book, Burning Down the House. Mm. And um, he talks a lot about um, the need for like stillness, um, like oftentimes uh, a scene with action will be sandwiched between two scenes of stillness and like the importance of stillness in fiction. Yeah. So, um, that's, uh, I, I think that there is a lot of propulsive action, but um, yeah. hopefully you get uh, a moment to catch your breath between. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I think so. Um, <laughs> wrapping up, um, where have you been? I know, so before we talked, you said you've been reading things for your PhD dissertation, yeah. and that's not as sexy as reading like the hot new fiction. But what, what have you been reading? Oh, well, what, what actually, I okay, did yeah. judge the LA Times Fiction Prize. This oh, year. there we go. So you've read a lot I of books. I have read books. a ton of fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there were so many beautiful books. Um, there was, um, I'm like looking at. I'm looking at all my books and Stacks, yeah. um, but I uh, I was most excited by uh, my Monticello. Mm. Uh, yeah. I was super excited by oh well, kind of like a companion to my book that I just finished is um, I loved the school of good. Yes, mm-hmm. that is. Um, I love the School of Good Mothers and uh, was heartbreaking and beautiful and smart in a way. And I think in this way, she was able to use fiction in a similar sense in that like, she wanted to likely tell the whole story and you, yeah. it's much harder to do that with journalism because it's like journalism requires like a both-sidedism and mm -hmm. objectivity and all this stuff that I really think is kind of bullshit and um this allows you to, to free you up to tell the truth yeah. and in the back what I really appreciated as someone who has reported intensely on the foster care system is she acknowledges um Betsy Bartholet who's um uh Harvard uh in, she she teaches at Harvard in mm -hmm. law, but she's um, very engaged within um, the foster care system and is sort of on the same lines of um, working against privatization and things that I I care about deeply. So I would definitely say Jessamine's um, book, The School of Good Mothers, was like a big one for me. Thank you so much to Melissa Chadburn for joining the Day Beautiful podcast today. You can find her at melissachadburn.com. You can find us at daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. As always, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. Beautiful.